Hello and welcome to the January edition of On the Horizon, a monthly podcast dedicated to helping you to navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Bechley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. It's a new year, Henry. 2022 we're looking at now. We can draw a line under 2021 and we are talking about January. So it doesn't matter if it's a New Year's resolution, a trip to BTME for a solution or an argument about trolleys causing a revolution. We'll be here to see you right Henry, it's great to know we have eight of these podcasts in the bank covering the challenges each month uh, and all the things that are likely to be thrown at us. All of those released well in advance of the month, giving you a chance to prepare and develop your own turf maintenance strategy. This month, we're talking about all the challenges that are on the horizon in January. So give yourself some time, have a listen and prepare yourself for what is on the horizon. Once again, Glenn, we begin the podcast uh, by taking a look at the climatic challenges that might be coming our way in January. So, Glenn, what's on that horizon? Well, let's have a little look, Henry. I think most people have got the idea now, but for those new listeners out there who have just tuned in... No, that's right, Glenn, because, of course, people are tuning in on their crystal radios or something well okay digitally discovering us then look we do try and cover the important nuances of the upcoming weather those things that can influence the agronomics of your situation yep if we are to plan ahead for all eventualities we need a good understanding of the climatic conditions that we might experience in the month ahead and to do this we need to look at the data rather than relying on our hazy memories and misconceptions that the weather is still like it was when we were young and in my case when Mungo Jerry were top of the charts singing about the summertime. Well Mungo I can tell you that the weather is now not always quite so high and so we need to look at the data to get a more helpful picture in our minds as we formulate our agronomic plans. I can't believe you slipped a Mungo Jerry reference into this, Henry. Have you been on the tea early today, mate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have actually. We'll get to that later on. <laughs> anyway, we use both of our locations, me on the south coast in Winchester and you in Ilkley in Yorkshire, as two fixed points to think about the weather that is coming our way. We're both pretty familiar with those sites, so it's easy for us to relate to. But the real objective of this isn't just to give people a weather forecast for our homes, Henry. It's more to just point out the differences between our two locations and to encourage people to pull their weather data out and really think about how they can use that data to help them plan for the month ahead. Yes, because all year, Glenn, um, even though we're about only 200 miles apart, we have been in quite different places agronomically, which never fails to surprise me. So, Glenn, come on, what's going on in January? Well, as always, Henry, we're going to start with the rainfall. And November and December's pattern continues. Right, so it's wet after wet after wet then, Glenn. 
Yes, well, that's what it should do, Henry. And after telling everyone that November and December that we were all going to be categorically swimming around our golf courses, we saw a record dry month this November, with some people only reporting about 15 millimetres of rain, which is just unheard of. Yeah, but we will always see some freak conditions, Glenn, won't we? Yep, and the freaky will just get freakier, Henry. I think that's a Mungo Jerry song too, isn't it? No, I think that was Captain Beefheart, actually, Glenn. Hmm. Anyway, for January, uh, we're both averaging about 90 millimetres of rain, Henry, with a potential range of 40 up to 225 millimetres. Okay, so wet or wetter then? Yes, but it's not the rainfall that worries me, Henry. We're now in in the south down here in our third month of very low evapotranspiration, which is the factor that gives us opportunities to dry out. We only see about 15 millimetres of moisture loss for us down here. And you're in your fourth month of really low evapotranspiration now. You're only averaging around 11 millimetres of moisture loss. Yeah, wet and no chance of drying out. So for me, it's moving from ugly to uglier, Glenn. Or freaky to freakier. Yeah, and with an increasing chance of snow, I think. Yeah, well, I've pulled out some data for that too, Henry, which wouldn't surprise you. And I've got some agronomic odds for you. January and February are for both of us the most likely period that we're going to see snowfall. For you in Ilkley, since 2008, you've seen some kind of snow event in January 13 times out of the last 14 years. Yeah, we always seem to get a bit up here and we've actually, we've already had some at the end of November thanks to Storm Arwin. Yes, and, and it was unusual to see snow that early, Henry. Looking back at the last 13 years, you've had three years where you've had snow events in November. But what I can't do is tell you how well that snow laid or how long it hung around for. So it was a pretty unusual event, but not unheard of for you to get snow that early. Now, if we look at us down south, um, January has delivered 11 times we've seen snow in the last 14 years. Ah, well, that is more than I expected for you, if I'm being honest. So are we now in the same agronomic place at last glenn yeah, agronomically we're getting pretty close now henry but the devil's in the detail with that snowfall most of those snow events are as low as quarter of a millimeter so absolutely nothing and quarter of a millimeter in my data represents a snow event so if we look at the averages on average we experience four centimeters of snowfall in january in winchester and you average 15 centimetres of snowfall in January. Now, that does surprise me. That, that seems rather a lot. Are you sure about that? Uh, yeah, but the thing is, they're skewed by some big snow events, Henry. So in 2018, you saw 40 centimetres of snow and another 40 centimetres in 2013. So those two big dumps of snow will significantly skew those averages. Whereas for us down south, for me and Winchester, we've only seen one big lump of snow back in 2010, and that was 20 centimetres. Ah, so those are unhelpful averages again, Glenn. OK, so snow is likely, uh, but a significant dollop is a one in six year thing for me um, and only a one in 14 year occurrence for you indeed but when it does happen 
we should know how to deal with it because whilst it's unusual it does happen doesn't it yes we might have all actually forgotten the significance of a significant dollop of snow agronomically and so let's try and pick up on that later on with a bit of a recap okay let's keep moving glenn and not get bogged down what about the temperatures i imagine uh, we might be making a genuine switch towards proper winter during January. Indeed. Uh, Once we get into January, Henry, the odds of cold weather ramp up considerably. We can both see some warm temperatures. We've both reached around 15 degrees in January before, but it is incredibly unusual. Yeah, so last month we spoke about how many days we get above 10 degrees C. How's that looking for January? Okay, so for us down south, it is on average seven days a month we get above 10 degrees C. But for you, Henry, it's only two days a month. Well, that is a big shift downwards for you from December, uh, but not really that huge for us up north. Well, December, you were averaging four days a month above 10 degrees, and we were averaging 14 days a month above 10 degrees. So they've both halved, Henry. So on average, half as many days above 10 degrees in January as in December. Okay, so is January officially the coldest month? Well, January and February seem to sit pretty similar, Henry, so it's very difficult to split the difference between these two months. Okay, so what are the temperature averages looking like for January? Well, your average daytime temperature in Ilkley is 5.7 degrees. And our average on the south coast is 7.3 degrees. Interesting. So we've both dropped about 2 degrees centigrade since December, which is quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, and overnight temperatures drop even further, Henry. We can see some very low extremes here. Uh, Ilkley experienced minus 7 in January 2013, and Winchester saw minus 9 in 2010. Yeah, you always do take that prize, Glenn, don't you, for the low temperatures? I do, and as always, it rarely plays out in the averages. But this month, our average lows are fairly similar, Henry. Just one degree between us, and agronomically, I'd suggest that means no difference between them. Ilkley's overnight temperature in January is averaging about 0.6 degrees, and Winchester's overnight average is 1.6 degrees. Yeah, it does feel like a real shift from December, doesn't it? From the end of autumn to the start of, like, true winter. But, Glenn, how are those sub-two degrees C hours looking like in January, or those sort of number of hours during the month that we're likely to go below two degrees C? We've been using this, haven't we, as a, as a sort of indication of potential disease activity. And I suppose what we're most most interested in is how long we stay down there. Yeah, sub two degree hours, they're the point where I suspect the temperature slows the progress of fuzz or microdochium patch, as you like to call it, Henry. It doesn't kill it, but we feel it stops it for a while. And this figure can give us a pretty good insight into the higher and lower pressure months and just how we all compare up and down the country. Okay, so I'm guessing like a 
maybe a, a big increase in those stopping hours from December to January and hopefully a less conducive environment for the development of microdoking patch disease? Well, in January, on average, you see 264 stopping hours and us down south in Winchester, we see 175 stopping hours. Right, so over eight of those stopping hours on average a day for me up north and what is it nearly six a day on average for you down south which i think is also a significant upshift from december where i think i was about six hours a day rather than eight on average and you were sort of sitting around five stopping hours a day rather than six so actually, when you think about it, maybe I'm getting the better end of things agronomically at this time, Glenn. Yeah, so my January is looking like your December, but the variability drops out of it a bit compared to December, Henry. All of our Januaries are pretty consistent, except for the occasional really cold one. Yeah, 2010, for instance. Yeah, that's right. 2010 was brutal. You hit 500 sub two degree hours that year, Henry. And just to put that into a little bit of perspective, there are 744 hours in a month. So 500 of those, you were below two degrees. Yeah. Uh, in that same year, we hit 382 sub two degree hours. Right. So... I think the point might be that I might be at the stage where I can almost like start relying on the cold weather to hold back the development of disease. But um, that might not be the case for you down south. Is that right? Well, the warmest years don't see those levels, Henry. And, you know, in your warmest year, you've still seen uh, 86 sub two degree hours. So I think... I think you're almost there and you can almost say, you know what, cold weather's going to deal with it. That is assuming you went into this period with a clean surface. Uh, But for us down south, you're right, that is a slightly different picture. Um, Some years we've seen as few as 18 sub two degree stopping hours. So although it's very unusual in January, it is still very possible for us to be in that territory where the weather is helping that disease uh, and playing in its favour. But the odds are now hugely stacked in favour of cold weather for you, and the odds have really improved for us. All right, well, that sounds promising. Now, over the months, we've been using growth degree days as a way of assessing the potential for growth. Surely now, Glenn, we're forgetting all about that now. Remember, we are comparing these figures to the best growing months either of us have seen in the last 14 years. And it was a particularly exciting month for me, Henry, because I got to enter some new data into my spreadsheet. Yes, that's right. I was entering 2021 weather data. So a particularly exciting time for me. Very good. So these are percentage figures that are taken off sort of our own individual maximums, aren't they? So they're sort of of working off different things. Um, And my maximum being lower, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, because we've reached higher potential for growth according to the temperatures than you have. Now, using those figures and working out the percentages, your coldest year ever, Henry, you reached quarter of 1% of your maximum growth potential in January. So that was your coldest year. 
quarter of 1%. Your warmest year you've ever seen, you saw 5% of your maximum growing potential with an average of 3%. So nothing at all, basically, Glenn, as we would expect, I suppose. Um, so I assume that in Ilkley, uh, we won't see any growth in January. But what about you down south? I imagine you must also have a month when things stop. Uh, that's right. And in January, you would imagine that's the month where it's most likely. But we're averaging at about 6% of our highest growth ever in January, um, with our coldest year being at 1.5%. But our warmest year, Henry, was 15%. Our warmest January was 15% of our highest growth potential ever. So still quite warm. Yeah, that is surprising. And I suppose, I mean, it's still very small, but a, a very small chance that the turf could still be functioning for you in January. That's right. And I've had a sneaky look forward, Henry, into February. I couldn't resist with that new data in there. Mm. And uh, January is indeed, on average, our lowest growth month. February, we sneak up a whole 2% with an average of 8% growth for us on average, in February. So January is definitely when we bottom out. Yeah, but it's still such a small amount of growth potential that it wouldn't be enough to start a recovery phase. But I suppose it might help slow down and decline. I don't think it would even do that, Henry. It's only geeks like me that get excited about 2%. Um, I suspect we're waiting another three months at least for that to reach any kind of useful figure. Okay. So there's no hope then? None. Right, none. So in summary, for us in Ilkley, it's getting colder, it's getting wetter, and it's getting uglier in January. The only bright side is that the cold weather might hold back the development of microdochian patch disease. And for us on the south coast, it's highly likely that we'll be wet and cold. It's our best chance of getting snow, but it's far more likely to fall as rain. Um, assuming we went in clean of disease, the odds are now in favour of some fuzz-stopping weather. But we can't absolutely rely on it because our January looks pretty similar to your December. OK, so can we call it proper winter now? Finally, Henry, I think we can. Yeah, Glenn, January is a tricking time. OK, Henry, from your perspective... What are the main risks we're going to face in January? Well, Glenn, hopefully Storm Arwen was not a completely ill wind and it blew away all the remaining leaves to be one less thing to think about. But as we discussed, I think that we're hoping that colder conditions will reduce the likelihood of microdochian patch disease developing. But we do still need to be on our guard, especially if it turns out to be mild or wet or if there's a significant and long-lasting dollop of snow. So let's have a quick discussion a little later on on the likelihood of that happening. Great. Looking forward to that one. OK, uh, over to you. What about leather jackets in, in January, Glenn? Well, if it goes cold, then this is our quiet month, Henry. Not too much to add from last month. Um, it's well worth listening to last month's podcast because all of the advice in there 
stands. Um, hopefully that temperature will be dropping consistently, so it's probably not even worth doing much sheeting for monitoring purposes unless we get a mild break in the weather. Okay, so any idea how mild you think would make this worthwhile? Uh, probably about four degrees overnight, Henry, but I think that's where people doing their own sheeting will start to help them get a grip on what works for them on their site now if we think back to last month and last month's podcast those findings those discoveries from sheeting in december will help to shape our strategy for now january and february so if they were finding nothing in december then we go to normal practices in January and February. If you're finding lots of leather jackets in December, then back off in January and February. So we went through that in quite some depth last month, so it's probably worth going back and having a listen to that. Oh, well, that's great. So we get a month off from leather jackets then? Yep, I hope so. But February, I suspect, will be the month the spring leather jacket story begins to unravel itself. Yeah, that is definitely a storm that is on the horizon. Okay, looking on to the other risks, I think uh, maybe the main problem will be with managing play uh, or play in frosty conditions, um, which I think we should discuss also a little later on. Yeah, I really don't miss those conversations with members. Indeed, Glenn. It can be a real health and safety nightmare for both the turf and the players in either frozen or actually wet conditions. Uh, so we should touch on that. Yeah, it's not an easy time for course management, that is for sure. Also, I think with the BTME show coming up at Harrogate at the end of the month, there is a serious risk of liver failure and premature ageing. So we need to be mindful of that. But also, of course, there's a real chance for everyone to upskill and get some learning in and also catch up with everyone or, or make new connections. And so I think it will be definitely worth having a look at the show from each side of the fence um, because it's such a great start to the year that we do need to focus on the positives. Absolutely, Henry. This is a really important time to develop the team and step it up for the year ahead. So, Glenn, still plenty of risks in January that we need to appreciate and minimise, but also a lot to look forward to as we go into the new year. Yeah, I'm a glass half full person when it comes to January, Henry. It's a really nice time to catch our breath and embrace the new year. Glad to hear it, Glenn. So, Glenn, what do the golfers expect from us in January? We're in the depth of winter, so the course is really just carrying over from where it left off at the end of autumn. Yeah, well, once we're into January, Henry, we really are just trying to hold on. The countdown is on. Things can begin to turn for the positive in March, but nothing really kicks off until April or May. Well, actually, it was June in 2021, wasn't it, Glenn? Indeed. So hopefully you've all managed to keep really good turf coverage up until now, because that's the key. The better we come into this period, the more chance we've got of coming out of the blocks quickly in the spring. And as we've seen in the weather data, it is now preservation time. We're not getting any recovery now for a couple of months, so we've really got to preserve turf in every way possible. 
things like Green's density, where something as simple as regular hole changing can make a difference. And I often see golf courses reduce the level of hole cutting regularity now because it's off season and the areas around those holes just get destroyed. It makes me want to scream, Henry. Yeah, it's important to remember those simple things, even at this time, Glenn. Of course, traffic areas are really important. We now need to rely on really good traffic management and trolley and buggy management. Yes, lots of ropes and their regular movement. And, of course, those sarcastic comments from some of the players who just don't get the need to protect the course at this time. And, of course, there's tees, aren't there? Par threes, short par fours, any tees that are undersized, they all become a real challenge now. A lot of golf clubs out there will be considering the use of AstroTurf for tees and maybe even considering using small strips for their weaker fairways. And this is the time of the year in January when those strategies will be kicking in. Yeah, I remember all those conversations, but the golfers generally aren't big fans of those, are they? Nope, they're not. They always prefer turf. OK, so did you ever use artificial turf, Glenn? Yeah, I always felt there was a place for them. Uh, par 3 tees, tees that really struggled with shade. I had some set up in alternative tee positions. Right, uh, what do you mean? Well, one of the things we did at Hockley, which was the last course I managed, was to set up some tees on the opposite side of the greens. Go on. Well, it was a strategy we adopted to kind of move and stagger the wear, Henry. By shifting the tee to the other side of the green, you completely changed the golfer's traffic patterns. And it offered an alternative way to play the hole. It's a kind of braid design feature that he integrated into a lot of his early courses, and it worked quite well at Hockley. Braid would design these tees on the left-hand side of the hole uh, behind the green and on the right hand side of the hole in a kind of triangle which meant the hole could be played in a number of different ways you could play it left to right you could play it right to left or you could play from a kind of shorter straighter hole but with time you tended to get favorite tees and one dominated the other and the other tees just got lost and forgotten about yeah it's really interesting isn't it but quite often those fantastic architectural features uh, can disappear and be forgotten over time, can't they? Yeah, so a lot of them were still there. So I opened them up and they offered an alternative way to play the hole. And they also changed and moved that where. So what I'd then do is I'd use different ones on different days, depending on the ground condition and who was playing that day. And anyway, some of them just didn't cope with the wear as they were small, no real maintenance. I'd kind of scalped them out out of long, heavy rough over the years. They had no irrigation on them. Few of them sat in the shade, so they just really struggled. So some of the members really liked them. So in order to keep them in play, we put AstroTurf on the few of them that really struggled. And it, it gave us options to move things around a bit and offer the golfers a bit of variability. Yeah, and still lots of ropes out there, Glenn. Uh, yep, ropes and stakes in full use now, Henry. People will be scrambling around the back of every shed to find a few extra ropes. Yeah, getting those um, last-minute orders in. That's right. You can never have enough of those things. And this is exactly the time of year when all of my grand ideas of having neat, tidy rope that is the same colour all the way around the golf course usually disappeared. And you start seeing all those old bits of tatty rope sneaking out there because... 
you know, it, the other bit was too tangled to use. It used to drive me crazy, Henry. I hated it. I'd spend a fortune on yellow elastic rope, which worked really well as it gave us a chance to move things easily. Elastic rope, Glenn? Yep, that's my top tip for traffic management right there, Henry. You get this kind of bungee cord and use it as rope, and it allows you to easily move one stake at a time without having to shuffle them all around. And I like it really neat and tidy, and uh, that got me into trouble one year. Right, okay, go on. Well, in hindsight, it's obvious, but at the time, I set it all up with black rope, Henry. Black rope, which I loved because it wasn't very visible, so it didn't mess with the visual aesthetics of the golf course, because that was really important to me. But the old boys who would plod around, they could hardly see. I kept tripping over it, and I had old gents tumbling all over the place, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I would think, Glenn, that the visibility of those ropes would be a key requirement. And actually, um, Ken at Harrogate, he was telling me that he actually takes into account the possibility of um, players' colour blindness when choosing the colour of his ropes. But Black, Glenn, what were you thinking? Well, it... It kept the golf course looking nice, Henry. But anyway, I'm 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 nothing if not prepared to accept when I'm wrong. So I, I bit my tongue and I bought a load of yellow elastic rope, which in my opinion looked horrible. But at least the aging membership could see it. But if it was gonna look awful, then at least it was gonna look consistently awful. But once we started to run out, because you can never have enough rope or people just can't put it away neatly and it's got all tangled up, people would start reaching for a bit of tatty old blue rope in the back of the shed, which just made me so angry, messing up with my all my aesthetics. But on the kind of flip side of that, I couldn't get angry with the team because I was just happy that they'd taken it upon themselves to go and protect another bit of the golf course. And um, so it was great to see them engaging and protecting the course, but they were using the wrong colour rope. But that wasn't the first time I got into trouble for using things of the wrong colour, Henry. So, you were a serial offender then, Glenn? Well, we had this awful entrance barrier, Henry. You know, like the ones you see on building sites. The most unwelcoming thing you can imagine. The kind of thing that just says, bugger off, you're not welcome here. You still sound quite bitter about this one, Glenn. I hated it, Henry, and I campaigned vigorously to have it removed and make the entrance more welcoming. After all, that was one of my initial briefs on day one, was to make the club feel more welcoming. And from my point of view, where better to start than the front gate? But got regularly told no. Apparently it was very important to keep people out. Uh, members only, written in bold letters. Correct. Trespassers will be prosecuted with a picture of a shotgun, that kind of thing? Not quite that extreme, Henry, but I think you get the picture. Anyway, in the end, I just took it upon myself to get it changed. Well, the colour, anyway. It was yellow and black, this barrier, which I felt was a warning and certainly not a welcoming thing. So I spoke to a local company, got them to wrap it in green and black. I even spent extra money getting these things reflective so that you drove with your car lights and shined on them and it shone back at you. 
it was really nice and visible in the dark. Well, that sounds a lot better. Yeah, it wasn't my dream of a smart front entrance um, that was super slick and oozing class, warmness and sophistication, all those things I'd campaigned for, but... A green and black barrier at least made it feel less like a high security compound. And it allowed me to say to myself, I've done everything I can. The problem was, Henry, the same old boys that were tripping over the black rope because they couldn't see it just kept driving into the thing. It's like a vendetta against them, Glenn. <laughs> you may laugh, Henry, but that was and probably still is the membership demographic of many golf clubs. Look, I guess the level of expectation is pretty simple in January. Golfers want to be on main greens. They want to be on main tees. They don't want frost to stop them playing. Even snow is questionable as an acceptable reason for not being allowed out. They also want to keep using their buggies and their trolleys whenever they turn up. But at the same time, they want the course to be protected. They think it's absolutely right that measures are put in place to ensure greens and tees are protected and great in the spring. And they understand that trolley restrictions are important and completely support all measures, as long as it doesn't affect them. Otherwise, they'll consider not joining next year because they no longer feel the club offers them value for money like it used to in the old days. Yeah, January can be the most uh, tricking time of all, can't it, Glenn? Especially if you're a golfer with failing eyesight and they've got you as their course manager. It's a bit harsh, Henry. Yeah, sorry about that. So January, you know as with each month, has its own set of problems. And at this time, their consequences can be quite far-reaching. Um, the Falls Clinic, for instance, and the, the car body shop, that kind of thing. And so there is plenty to discuss in the second half. So, Glenn, shall we take a break and regroup for part two? Yes, Henry. After the break, I think we should have a chat about microdochian patch disease, how to handle snow cover, winter frost policies and our annual pilgrimage up to your neck of the woods for the BTME show at Harrogate. Sounds good, Glenn. Fancy a cuppa? I'll get the kettle on. Welcome back to part two of January's on the Horizon, our podcast to help you look a little further forward and help prepare your turf from the upcoming perils. So, Glenn, are you there or are you out setting traps for old people? Thank you, Henry. You're not going to let that drop, are you? Yes, I'm here and you know I am indeed a kind and considerate person. I do indeed, Glenn. So, do you have your cuppa? Yes, Henry, I do. And this month I've gone for a Tesco's decaf. Smooth and rounded. <laughs> Very good, Glenn. How is it? Over milked, Henry. The problem with a decaf, mate, is it's weak to start with. You stick too much milk in it and it's just awful. So mm. once again, I've failed. What about you, Henry? What have you managed to cadge this month? Where, where have you got your tea from? Any far-flung places? Well, kind of, Glenn. This month I've been sampling an assortment of exotic teas from the tea advent calendar that you kindly sent me. My pleasure, Henry. 
How how are you getting on with them? Okay, Glenn, but they are a little bit outside my comfort zone. Uh, we've got peppermint, we've got rosehip, there's ruibos in there, whatever that is. But I did find one that I expe- I especially like. Oh, go on. What was that then? The peachy keen, Glenn. Oh, and how would you describe your peachy keen, Henry? Hot and fruity, Glenn but with a dark side. Perfect for in front of an open fire, I would say. Nice. (laughs) Very good, Henry. Um, Awesome. Uh, I should also report that the... um but you got me a cheese advent calendar this year, Henry, which I'm very grateful for. So I've been having a bit of a bit of a taster of that through the beginning of December. So any brie in there, Glenn? No, it's very early in December at the moment. I don't think anyone's brave enough to leave a bit of brie in an advent calendar. But maybe, maybe that will start stinking the house out by the time we get through to Christmas Day. But no, so far I've just had a bit of applewood cheddar. Oh, sounds good. Sounds very good, Glenn. Uh, We should say that actually neither of us have completed sampling our Advent calendars because, as you say, we've recorded this well in front of Christmas. But, Glenn, if we're thinking on to that horizon, how do you anticipate that Christmas will go for you this year? Uh, Well, we're going up to the in-laws in Wales, so that will be delightful. But I do have a slight cheese concern about my Welsh trip, Henry. My mother-in-law, who is an absolute superstar and a delight, but she seems to think I am a massive fan of cranberry cheese, or sorry, cranberry in cheese. Mm. But nobody else in the household likes it. Mm. And I've been too polite to tell her for the last decade. So every year my lump of cranberry cheese gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And unless I eat it... I'm in trouble. So apart from that, very much looking forward to it. Yeah, my dad once said that he liked Turkish Delight when he was a child and and spent, uh, I think it was 50 years later when he finally admitted that he didn't like it. So you're in in a very difficult situation there, Glenn. Um, Tread very carefully. Yeah, I've got about a kilogram of cranberry cheese to eat over three days. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, myself, I mean, looking looking ahead for myself, I think maybe at one point, possibly on Christmas Eve, that I'll have have seen the error of my ways, Glenn, and suddenly become sort of both generous and kind-hearted and vow to make amends um, to any old people that I may have inadvertently caused injury to in the past. Just drop it, Henry. It's not funny anymore. So, Henry, with January upon us, I'm hoping that the risk of microdochian patch disease developing along will be significantly declining. After all, we're going past Christmas into a cooler period. Surely we can relax during January and spend a few days at Harrogate without having to worry about this disease any longer. Well, Glenn, yes, I think that your adage, keep it clean till Santa's been, has some merit to it if we look at the weather averages. Um, But obviously, it will depend on the actual weather conditions. If the climatic averages do play themselves out, then we can expect lower levels of disease pressure. And possibly we can 
simply rely on our background supporting ITM strategies to keep things in check. You know, we might have some nutrition in place. We might be able to focus on surface moisture management, as well as maybe invoking the occasional use of iron and other measures such as phosphites. But if we experience a mild and wet month, or if there is an extended period of snow coverage on the horizon, then it might be an altogether different story and our supporting treatments might not be enough. Yes, Henry. But I think the real worry is for those scars that have got away from us uh, back in 2021. Um, They can begin to reignite at this time of year in conditions when you wouldn't normally see new activity. It's a far easier ride if you manage to keep things really clean. So for those turf managers out there who get to mid-January absolutely clean, you can usually back off the fungicide completely, resting easy, knowing even if the weather changes in favour of this disease, it's unlikely to move quickly. But the ones who lost control through October, November and December and have let that disease get away from them a bit, they tend to chase their tail now in this period of zero recovery. Yeah, that's right. You know, how often do we see the edges of previously active scars reactivating themselves at this time when conditions are even just slightly favourable? Yes, those late autumn and pre-Christmas outbreaks can rumble on and they can be really difficult to shake off at this time. So, do we reckon, Glenn, that this is pathogenic activity awakening from inside the plant or it's just a reflection of a high level of spores being present in those areas from previous activity uh, which are ready to germinate probably a bit of both henry but honestly i don't know for sure myself and i don't think anyone's ever gone into that depth of study to really understand it but i'm really happy to be corrected on that one if anyone knows some kind of research paper that's looked at it But we do now have a very weak plant and we've got high levels of spores in those situations because they've just been allowed to kick on for the last three months. And we can still jump into some nice temperatures for the disease, albeit for shorter periods of the time. But the fact that it is so difficult to shake would point to me that it can still get into that plant quite quickly. So preventative applications are still the key because delivering systemic fungicide activity needs laser-like accuracy to grab those windows of opportunity at this time of the year because those warm conditions are so few and far between. And the use of the outside the plant actives, such as fluidioxanil, which is in medallion, they are able to reduce that spore population as long as it is of a manageable size. Anything that's in the plant needs systemic activity to stop it instantly, which is what golf course managers want, this instant stop. But with contact technology, we just have to wait for that disease to run through its life cycle before it can get a grip. And that running through its life cycle process in colder weather that we get in January is probably slower than it was a month ago. And these areas can lead to really significant flare-ups of disease and would definitely be a cause of heightened concern for anyone looking at those scars, you know, know, coming out of Christmas. If that was the case, I think we, you know, we should continue to focus 
on our ITM methods to create a less conducive environment for the development of disease, nutrition and moisture management as appropriate. And also focus our applications of um, iron sulfate for for that time when we might fear a flare-up might be in the offing. But if we do fear a sustained and damaging flare-up at this time, then I'm assuming that the fungicide medallion would be essential as well at this time, Glenn. Yep, in general, I would say so. But if we are experiencing unusually mild conditions where you feel that there's enough plant activity going on to allow systemic uptake and translocation of those fungicidal active ingredients, then I wouldn't discount the application of Instrata Elite because it contains both inside and outside the plant actives. And that inside the plant component that diphenaconazole, which might be able to deal with that pathogen that is kind of inside working away on the plant. But depending on where you are, that would be quite unusual conditions though. Um, if you think you've got enough translocation going on at the time in the plant, enough activity, it's worth considering. But we do get those breaks in the weather, Henry. They're unusual, uh, but with a bit of laser-like focus, you can grab those opportunities. And depending on where you are in the country, there is more opportunity for that strategy the further south you go. If you're on the coast where it's a bit milder, it might be more appropriate to you. And um, probably a strategy that's been regularly employed in many parts of Ireland for quite a while. Yes, indeed, Glenn. Um, But I suppose the main point is that we reckon that it is certainly a lot easier to manage disease if we come into the new year with clean surfaces and with the surface spores having already been cleared away with our pre-Christmas application of medallion. Yeah, a completely different story. It should be plain sailing with supporting ITM strategies if the weather settles into its seasonable norm. Okay, so fungicide applications ideally preemptive aren't out of the question in uh, January you know we should have something like medallion on the shelf just in case now you're going to talk about the management of our turf in sort of colder conditions and under snow a little later on aren't you Glenn yes and uh, when we talked about January and the potential for harsh weather conditions I think we both felt a little unprepared for these snowy extremes after all the recent mild winters we've seen. So we will go into that a little bit later just to make sure we are all up to speed. Very good. So in summary, the likelihood of microdochian patch disease developing in January is lessened but not completely stopped. We still need to keep our guard up, especially in mild and damp conditions, or if there is a chance of an extended period of uh, snow lying on the the turf. And that risk is greatly heightened if we have some old scars lurking that we think might still have a little life in them yet, given the right conditions. Yes, yes, you're right. And I know the purpose of this podcast, Henry, is to think about next month. But never has the message been clearer for me. Disease management in January is all about what you do in October, November and December. So if you're listening to this podcast before Christmas and you're in a kind of 50-50 decision on an agronomic strategy to go with to do with disease management, then my words of wisdom for today, other than yellow elastic rope, is do everything you can now in December 
as it's worth twice as much now as it is in January. Take your breaks and get everything in place to prevent that disease activity over this dangerous holiday break. Keep it clean until Santa's been. Wise words, Glenn. Well, this is an important one, Henry. Snow is an area of uncertainty and concern for the UK. I see a lot of people hesitating and worrying about snow cover and what to do in it in the UK. Which makes sense, of course, because we don't deal with it on a regular basis. And we both had a chat about this, didn't we? And whilst we thought we had a pretty good handle on what to do in very wintry conditions, we felt it was wise maybe to sort of seek a wider counsel from uh, from some experts who have more regular experience. Yes, that's right. We've pulled some best practices and guidance from some wise Jedis of the turf world who have dealt with snow on a regular basis. And not UK snow, Henry, but proper snow. We had a good talk through with my friend and esteemed colleague Lars Fetter over in Norway, who was a course manager in a previous life, but now manages the Syngenta turf business in the Nordic regions. I also spoke to Katie Dodson, who is Syngenta's global technical manager. Yes, she's got a really interesting story, hasn't she? Yes, she has. She grew up in a family of superintendents in Canada and was an assistant superintendent at Canada's most northern championship golf course. She studied and taught both in the USA and Canada. She's super smart and is now Syngenta's global tech manager. And if you do a little Google search on Kay Dodson, you'll find a load of her work looking at reduced winter kill and studies of influencing factors. Sounds perfect, Len. Any other superstars? Well, last but no means least, Steve Chappell. Um, Steve Chappell is our our 2% of listeners from Slovenia, Henry. Um, Managed golf courses in Bristol, Neath, Scotland, and he's now out there in Slovenia. Um, He offered some real insights into both the understanding of the UK and proper snow. Um, This felt, between us, like a great idea when we spoke about it. But honestly, when I started talking to all these turf ninjas, I felt like I was trying to smash a nut with a sledgehammer. Honestly, we think we have challenges in the UK. These guys and girls are just off the scale. So before we go on to snow cover as a way of just showing how extreme these areas of the world can be, I thought I'd pull their stopping hours out to get a handle on their climates. Oh, very good. Very good, Glenn. So what are their stopping hours then? Now, remember, you and Ilkley are averaging 264 sub two degree hours in January. And me down in Winchester on the south coast are about 175. So if we look to Steve over at Royal Bled in Slovenia to start with, he averages 414 sub two degree hours in January. Okay, so that is a step up. It is. Now, Katie, when she was in Yukon in Canada, she was averaging 744 sub two degree hours on average. That is literally every hour in January, Henry. And not only that, in every year. In the data I've got back to 2008, they have never been above two degrees in January. 
In fact, they've never been above freezing. They sit around kind of minus 15 to minus 20 most of the time. The warmest temperature I could find was minus half a degree. Fair enough, Glenn. I think I'm getting the picture now. Now, Lars over in uh, the Nordic area is the most useful, though, I think, because he covers quite a wide range of Scandinavian climates over there. And in central Finland, he can compete with Katie. Uh, they see, on average, 740 sub-two degree hours in January. In fact, since 2008, they've only ever had 35 hours over two degrees in January. But over on the west coast of Norway, around Savanger, they're a more familiar set of numbers. There he's seeing about 265 sub-two degree hours, so very similar to you in Ilkley. So Lars's warmest areas of the country are very similar to you, moving through to some of the coldest golf courses on planet Earth. So what did you find out from these hardened souls? Well, after they all stopped laughing at me at how pathetic our snow was and our cold is compared to theirs, they all agreed on a number of themes that I've tried to summarise for our podcast listeners. Uh, the UK does have a problem that they don't face, and that is that we remain open. All of these other regions that go really cold, they have a closed season. Even Stavanger and places with a similar climate to us seem to dramatically reduce their golf offering and they move very much into preservation mode. Their culture just allows them to shut the place down more. So firstly, they all recognise and knew of the UK's problem of having golfers banging on the door every day of the year. They have their problems with those super cold climates uh, but what they're trying to do is really trying to preserve as much turf cover as possible. They accept some damage, but it's a race at the start of the season to get the putting surfaces into great condition as they've got these really short playing windows. So for their businesses, every day sooner the recovery comes, the better it is for the business. So they spend a lot of time preparing and protecting their surfaces for the onslaught, and then they go into a recovery phase. Now, secondly... They all agreed that the enemy is ice. The enemy is not snow. Snow is very breathable and does very little harm. Ice, however, is not breathable and that doesn't allow the plant to respirate and transpire and do all the things it needs to do. So a long time under ice will cause death. Okay, so how long has the turf got under ice then, Glenn? Well, let's use poa as our example, as that's the predominant species in the UK and the most susceptible to damage under ice. And with that situation, you've got about 30 days under ice cover as your worst case scenario. Now, some biotypes will go on to about 90 days, but if we assume 30 days before you need to do something to get some air through that ice to the plant, then you should be fine. Now, talking to Katie this was very interesting because she was saying in the colder regions power will go on longer because it's had time to uh, develop over many generations to be more tolerant so for the UK uh, she was pretty confident 30 days was what we would do but because we haven't experienced that year on year on year we're probably looking at 30 days as an absolute maximum now, it's worth saying we're not talking about frozen soil here. We are talking about genuine ice cover over the top of the turf. 
But that is quite an unlikely situation for anyone in the UK and an, an island to be dealing with. Uh, 30 days of ice cover is, is way beyond anything that we've experienced in recent times. Yep, but it is very possible for those people in those other climates, for those guys and girls to be dealing with, but probably not for us. So whilst I wanted to know about snow cover, these people kept reverting back to talking about ice because they were very, very strong on ice is the enemy, not snow. Snow is breathable. Ice isn't. That suffocates. Now, this is really useful because we can start to frame it in our minds and we start to think about how we keep that snow as breathable as possible. And so the advice here was to simply leave it alone and keep away from it. Keep golfers off it, keep greenkeepers off it and keep sledges off it because I suspect that's our biggest problem here. You know, all the local kids coming down and congregating at your golf club to enjoy the snow. Now, in our situation or my situation, my members hated this as it was their golf course. But actually, I quite enjoyed seeing the club integrate into the local communicate. But if you have a green right on that perfect black sledging run, then all of that snow is going to get compacted into ice. And compacted snow or ice makes it less breathable and we move more away from the safety of snow and more into the danger of ice. So maybe, Henry, it's time to think about some sledge management. Wow, that's not a phrase I thought I'd ever hear. OK, so beyond sledge management, um, what about when snow does lie on the turf for extended periods? The third common thought between all of them was snow on frozen ground is absolutely fine. Relax, enjoy the break, sweep out the yard, get the risk assessments done, have a fire, take some of that loo time that you've inevitably built up. Snow on frozen ground is good news. Now, the difference is snow on unfrozen ground when that ground is soft and thawed out and there is no frost in there that is our concern now if we're clean of disease going into that snow cover things shouldn't get away from us quickly but if we have active disease then this is when we should be worrying or concerned and let's be honest that's what we've been aiming for and talking about for the last three months is getting putting surfaces clean of disease going into this period. The real snow cover disease management work is done in October, November and December. So once again, it feels appropriate to roll out, keep it clean until Santa's been. If we can see snow coming and that ground is not frozen, we would want to seriously consider the use of a fungicide to ensure we come out of snow cover as clean as we went in. And the more disease activity we've had through that autumn period and that Christmas period, the more seriously we want to take it. So in summary, manage golfers and sledges, keep them off. Don't compact the ice because ice is the enemy, not the snow. If you did get some ice cover, then you've got 30 days before you need to worry. Snow on top of frozen ground, relax. Snow on unfrozen ground, well, the foundations were laid October through to December. And you'll probably come out the way you went in if you get some fungicide down in advance. Simples. Yep, very simple, Glenn. And of course... We do all need to get working on our sledge management policy right away. 
So, Henry, what about frost policy? You must have had your fair share of this when you were an agronomist. Yeah, I would always be asked to comment on this because it's it actually can be such a divisive issue, so much so that an independent arbitrator would uh, often be needed to try to make sure that the opposing parties didn't completely descend into a irretrievable spat that could uh, create um, permanent divisions. It's strange, but this is the kind of issue that can really lead to, um, you know, breakdowns in relationships. And, you know, it's sometimes those innocuous points of principles that can lead to things really getting out of hand. Tell me about it, Henry. It's those little things that get us all in the end. And it's so easy to walk straight into them. Um, Frost policy was always a touchy subject because no matter what, there would always be those golfers who want to get out and play no matter what the long-term impact. Yeah, no matter what is always dangerous, Glenn, isn't it? Um, It was certainly clear to me that if we left the course in the hands of the golfers, then it would soon be destroyed, especially in winter. And we know the consequences of any sort of turf damage at this time can be really far-reaching, no matter what, Glenn. Yeah, and I don't think they really know how quickly you can lose grass cover and then how long it can take to get it back. I think they just miss the fact that Mother Nature puts the handbrakes on and it doesn't matter what you do, you can't take those handbrakes off. The best we can do now is protect what we have. Yeah, and they, and they don't know that if we lose the grass cover and the surface becomes muddy, then it's only going to get worse. That old agronomist adage, Glenn, mud begets Mud. Indeed, Henry. So what should we be doing? Because I don't think there is a clear-cut answer to this problem. And often I see those course managers trying to do the best by their clubs and their members getting into the biggest muddle over this one. Well, it should just be a, a simple evaluation of is it worth it? And if the the damage or potential damage is so severe, then you just have to back off and adjust the usage but that's why like a few individuals kicking up a fuss about course closures can do so much damage because the greens chairman uh, might think that the the aggravation that closing the course causes is simply not worth it and so it's the course that ends up suffering and then the green keepers bear the brunt of it later on But it's not a simple call. You know, there's lots of degrees of frost, some extremely hard and penetrating, some quite superficial. Some might last for days and weeks and others for just an hour or two. Play on some might result in significant damage while others result in none. Um, I suppose the ultimate key to all this is the health and safety of the turf and, of course, of the players. And we manage these type of situations, don't we, with with risk assessments. It's really difficult, ultimately, Glenn, to argue with a formal risk assessment as being the justification for course closure. I can hear him at the bar now, Henry. It's health and safety gone mad. I know, Glenn, it's really dangerous territory, but it's important that we don't destroy the golf course. But look, how did you feel about Frost? Were there the sort of 
different kinds that you'd be more mindful of? Did you experience any massive fallouts as a result of implementing a frost policy? If I'm being honest, as an agronomist, I just thought that it was a good excuse to rest the course and so would always support course closure or the implementation of a frost policy if the course manager needed it. Oh, I don't know, Henry. That's a tough question. I I think I just tried to set the right balance of protecting the course and giving the members the course. Uh, If I didn't feel there'd be too much risk of harm, it's easier on free draining courses where the threat of mud begetting mud is lower. Uh, It's certainly a different dynamic in a commercial environment where the financial pressures are more aligned to keeping it open. But I was always wary of a hard frost um, and tried to keep the golfers going as best as I possibly could as I felt the benefit of playing in those situations always outweighed the downside and the turf damage but you're right about the resting thing i saw the benefit of a frost policy as having a way of sending some golfers home to take the pressure off the golf course but i think that's why it never really sat comfortably with me i always reserved the right to give the course a break when i felt it was going too far But that backfired numerous times because the golfers just didn't understand and it appeared I was being inconsistent. Um, I always ended up upsetting one group or another. Uh, I was very nervous about the frost coming out of the ground and I always was very fearful of root shear. But honestly, that didn't happen very often. And again, it was really confusing to golfers. They were playing on frost for a week and then the temperature lifts they get all excited about going out and playing in better temperatures and I'd put them on temporaries and you could just hear the bar talk now. He doesn't know what he's doing. No, Bert, he's got no idea. Look, I took out my prodder and I could stick it all the way in, no problem at all. And they all had a prodder, Henry. I bet everyone listening to this podcast knows exactly what I mean by a member who's got a prodder. It was an implement that was fashioned in the garage to see how frozen the ground is. And I've seen some pretty fancy prodders over the years, Henry. So what are you saying, Glenn? Beware the golfer with the self-fashioned prodder. That is exactly what I'm saying. Mm. Anyway. Wise wise words again, Glenn. (laughs) I was never even sure how much damage was actually inflicted on greens with frosts coming out of the ground. Roots would regenerate as soon as there was a chance. Honestly, the surfaces in those conditions were just rubbish. They were soft, they would pitch mark horrendously, they would be uneven. I get why people want a walk on a nice frosty day, but I never fathomed why they got excited about concrete greens with ice strategically scattered around the hole or spongy soft Fouring greens over the top of what was as hard as concrete. It just made no sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. It does seem like madness to me as well. Just go for a walk. Um, But, Glenn, any experiments out there on the course? I know you like to experiment. Of course I did, Henry. Look, what I used to do during frosts, I used to close half of the putting green. Uh, The putting green was right next to the clubhouse, so it got loads and loads of traffic whilst people were waiting. So I would have let them play on half of it that was frosty and the other half I would protect. 
Now, in general, we didn't see much short-term difference, but come the spring, the rested half was always much better. But it would be, wouldn't it? Because I've concentrated twice as much traffic onto half the putting green, and I've given the other half a complete rest. But what I never worked out is if just resting it in those frost periods or giving it the rest would have shown any real difference between the two, and I'll never really know. Um, but what it did do was give me quite clear evidence to the club that the more you rest the putting surface, the better condition it will be in the spring. Now, more of a concern was the danger of slipping because we don't want anyone doing themselves any mischiefs out on the golf course. No, Glenn, that's right. Your preferred method was invisible ropes, wasn't it? Or, as I like to call them, golfer snares. Anyway, we just need to strike a good balance, don't we, between turf protection and satisfied customers, if that is at all possible. But if we lose grass cover at this time of year on the golf course, then it's a long time before we get it back. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so to get a sense of the wider opinion, Glenn, we have conducted some Twitter straw polls on this subject. Oh, very good. What would you find out, Henry? Well, the first question was, does your course have an official policy for play in frosty conditions? With the answers being... Yes, no, and sort of. Mm, I think I would have answered yes, but it was more convoluted than it needed to be. Well, the top answer was yes, with 57%, and no and sort of being about 22% each, uh, which I am a little bit surprised about, with, with yes being slightly low what do you think about that glenn i think there with me in general henry most of them just want to do the best thing by the members and get them out on the golf course but that needs flexibility as every day is different and each day will need a judgment call and it all gets pretty complex in a policy so guess what the policy ends up looking like the golf course manager to make a decision and then the pressure falls firmly on guess whose shoulders with no possible right answer. Yeah, it's a total minefield, isn't it? Anyway, moving on. So our second question was, how much damage can play in frosty conditions cause? With the answers, potential answers being none, minor, moderate and severe. So what would you have said, Glenn? Mm, for me, that's long-term traffic over frosty surfaces will reduce quality. But I don't think that's an option, so I would have said minor. Well, our survey said uh, none was 8%. Severe damage was 19%. Moderate was 26%. But the top answer with 47% was indeed minor, which is how you felt about it, wasn't it, Glenn? I suppose it does depend on each individual situation. And it's clear that actually, even even though severe was only 19%, you know, that's still quite a big number for severe damage, isn't it? Um, but generally, it didn't, it wasn't perceived as being a huge issue in the main. But I wonder if we'll have a winter this year that might change all that. Yeah, we could do. That result might just be a reflection of the run of mild winters we've experienced in recent years. The third question, Glenn, was uh, what kinds of frost 
cause the most damage to turf under play, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was worded that badly, but that's the way I've read it. Uh, with the potential answers being a hard frost, a light frost, uh, when it is lifting, and all are similar. So what do you think, Liam? Lifting for me. Biggest impact on putting surfaces is when that frost is falling. Yeah, 60% of people uh, agreed with you on that, that lifting was the one of most concern, with 20% of people going for hard frost, which you also mentioned as well. So uh, we got about 100 answers for those questions, for each of those questions. So, yeah, so thank you to everyone for participating in that. And I think it's it's always interesting to get that sort of sense of reality in this thing. So, look, if we are trying to strike the right balance in in all order to protect the course from frost damage during this time there are a few tactics that we can use temporary greens was one that you've already mentioned uh, for when the frost was coming out of the ground and also i believe that you you yourself were an advocate of cutting two holes in each green uh, during this time to make the traffic management a lot easier yeah assuming that we're keeping people on greens during these frosty conditions moving that wear around becomes critical to managing this situation well so changing holes becomes more important than ever but that's quite difficult to do in a frost so if you get a couple of holes led out beforehand you can move that traffic around it's a great idea Um, and I did see recently on Twitter that some course managers are actually out there trying to take advantage of the frost to get out and do some mowing especially in these worm cast infested fairways that some people have got to deal with now um, just to present those prevent those casts from smearing um, and the inevitable mud begetting mud. Yes. Uh, I was chatting to a course manager who was doing this and he said that the benefits of mowing his fairways in really frosty conditions far outweighed any downside which was a bit of sort of tire tracking in places but not much else. But don't you think given that the climatic trends that we experience at the moment that a sort of a wet course policy document might also be as equally important as a frost policy going forward yeah i think we have to accept we're getting no recovery through this period of the year so it's about going into it as good as possible and then protecting it as much as possible each course is going to have a different protection requirement for some it will be traffic for some worms will come into that situation for some it will be how wet they are for others they'll have loads of slippery slopes they've got to deal with we just have to protect the golf course at this time in any way we can because no one will thank us for a mud bath when we get into April and when everyone is limbering up beginning and getting ready for that main playing season. Yeah, we do need to try to hold our ground because there's a far greater good at play. But it's not easy when emotions might be running high or you've got sort of a huge amount of pressure from people to, um, to do the wrong thing. No, it's always tricky, Henry. But Henry, we can't talk about January without mentioning BTME at Harrogate. No, we can't. I'm very much looking forward to it this year. It will be my 30th show this year. That's not possible, Henry. It is. um, Started with SCRI, then with Vitax, um, then the SCRI again. 
Um, then with Everest, remember then, anyone? And, and now, of course, with ICL. Uh, come on, though, Glenn, don't pretend that you're some youngster. You must be close to that. No way am I close to 30. Um, first one I went to was 94 when I was at college, so that was only oh, 27 years ago. Oh, um, But I did spend a couple of years working over in Austria, a couple of years working in the States, so that's four I definitely couldn't have gone to. And several clubs I worked for wouldn't financially support me going. So when I did, it was my own money, shared hotel rooms and use of my holiday. So it certainly didn't happen every year. Well, that is a big commitment, actually, Glenn, isn't it? It does show, you know, how important the show is to people. Yeah, and um, I think that's how I got my further education and development, Henry. And when you pay for those things yourself, it really does focus the mind a little. You know, I made sure I enjoyed myself. But I also made sure that I learned something too. Okay, so how many do you think you've done in total there? I probably eighteen, I'd guess. But um, but as with the weather, your memory gets a bit fuzzy, and I suspect maybe that might be closer to twenty-five. I don't know. Um, but only two as trade, Henry. Yeah, it feels like it should be more than that, Glenn. I know. I started at Syngenta in May 2018. I did BTME 2019, where we had a great big chafer grub on the stand. And then I did 2020, where we launched the Application Academy, which COVID has frustratingly delayed. And then COVID robbed us of BTME 2021. And here we are, BTME 2022. Well, hopefully. So how does it differ being on the trade side of things now than when you were attending as a greenkeeper or course manager? Uh, Well, from my experience to date, it's just been fantastic, Henry. It's been hard work, lots of time on my feet, lots of jumping into seminars to both listen and present. Uh, And you and I did that half-day workshop together not last year, but the year before. Yeah, that was fun, actually, wasn't it? I like workshops because you can mess about more and uh, and sorry, and be more interactive. Yeah, no one's filming or recording you, are they, Henry? No, thank the Lord for that. Yes, indeed. Um, well, look, BTME is a really enjoyable part of the job. I love catching up with everyone condensed into three days. Uh, Henry, are you presenting anything this year? Yes, myself and Andy, Dr Andy Owen, are presenting on the latest ICL-funded research, actually, that's coming out of the universities, you know, like some PhD work and master's work. Uh, So that should be interesting. What about you? Uh, Well, I'm doing a half-day workshop on what I've learned about data since I stepped over to this side of the industry and how to best interpret it. And then I'm also doing a session on the role that I think digital is going to play in turf management as we move into the future. It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it, to to try and make data interesting, Glenn? It is a challenge, Henry, but I think I'm up to it. Interestingly, this week I saw a job advert out there somewhere floating around on the internet. And under the attributes, it stated, able to make decisions driven by data. Yeah, it's great to see that kind of thing, isn't it, on a job advert. It's a sign of the, a real sign of the way that the industry is going. I agree. It's an incredibly important part of the job. Um, And I thought I was pretty good on data. But what I've realised is there's so much more to learn about how to interpret it than I ever understood. Now, I'm no data ninja, Henry, but I am hoping to make that one 
interesting, useful and fun. No, but you are a rope ninja, Glenn. Anyway, uh, we should mention that this is a great time to use your turf reward points and claim education vouchers for BTME. There's loads of good workshops and lectures and all this and the other going on in, in 2022. And educating your team is is a great way to use those turf reward points. So remember to make your claim before Christmas and um, get some real value out of them. Okay, so what else have you learned, Glenn, on this side of the fence? Uh, Well, I think I was surprised by just how many people you end up chatting with. I knew I'd be talking a lot, but it's just a constant run of people. Never any conversation in any great depth. Um, nothing very deep, just lots of touching base with people, saying hello and waving at people that you recognise. Yeah, that's what I find the most difficult, really, is that sort of um, constant flow of people coming to say hello and catching up. And you just kind of go from one conversation to the next, which is great, don't get me wrong on that, but it can be a bit disorientating, especially for a man of my age. Um, You keep away from me with those ropes, Glenn, come on. I think the thing that surprised me was just how many people I know and how many more people know me. Yeah, and, and, well, and just how difficult it is to remember people's names and where they're from, especially when you meet when you meet them out of their work environment, all smartened up. Yeah, thank God you admitted that first, Henry. I thought it was just me. Um, it's impossible, isn't it? When you're visiting people, it's easy. When you bump into them at a regional area, it's not too bad because you've prepped a bit and you can kind of place the golf courses in that area. But at Harrogate, well, you need to be some kind of memory master to remember where everyone's from. Henry, have you mastered the quick glance at the name tag to reassure yourself that people are who you think they are? No, I don't think you ever really master that, Glenn. I'm not wrong, though, am I? It is an essential part of being on a stand. I even found myself doing it to my best mates. I was so overwhelmed by meeting so many people. I just found myself checking that they are actually who I think they are. Yeah, I sometimes check my own badge for reassurance. Um, but you're much more into social media than I am, Glenn, so you got all that to add into the equation. I know. And I've got, I talk to so many people online, and so many people send me images of leather jackets now, it's frightening. And they get in touch through Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, LinkedIn. It just goes on. Loads and loads of people email me on a regular basis about their challenges, which is great. And I love all that engagement. And I can have some real in depth conversations with people but never actually know what they look like. And um, look, I think that's my first tip for getting the most out of Harrogate Week. Um, If you've been communicating with Henry or myself about anything, then make sure you come and say hello and you mention what it is we've been communicating out right at the beginning. What? Something like, I don't know... um... Hi, Claire. My name's Henry. I work at ICL and I've been doing a podcast with you for a few months and I may have occasionally bored you to death with my story about iron 1,000 times. You know, that kind of thing. Yes, that would be perfect, Henry. And then I'd know what you actually look like, mate, rather than just what you sound like. If you could also make sure your badge is on display, (laughs) that would be really helpful too. Um, I guess it's not too bad for those managing smaller areas, but once you start covering areas like we do, Henry, the whole of the the UK and the island of Ireland, um, the ageing memory starts to fail a little. It is tricky. 
Yes, Glenn. And for those that don't know, Glenn's area of responsibility is going to expand even further in the new year. He'll be covering all of Europe. So don't think that he's being uh, rude if he doesn't recognise you. He's got a lot more names and faces to remember. So congratulations, Glenn. Um, but what we sh- yeah, But what we should do is encourage people to show us their badge as they approach us at the show. Yeah, that, that'll work on two fronts. We'll recognise their names a little bit quicker. But we'll also know if anyone actually gets this far in the podcast or not. Yeah, yeah, that's how we'll know uh, that we have a a listener approaching. Um, So we can give you preferential treatment, of course, a kind of exclusive club for listeners, you know, a kind of benefit thing. Um, Yeah, for those hardy souls who are still listening now. Mm, I'd imagine it's going to be a pretty exclusive club, Henry. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, look, here's what I propose. If you come to see us on the ICL or St. Gen, to stand at the show and you show us your name badge and you say loudly as you approach listener approaching on the horizon then we'll give you a gift uh, like a like a membership token um probably to the most exclusive club at btme um how many gifts do you think we'll need to, to, to get ready for this one, Glenn? About four, I suspect, Henry. Yeah, that's what the listening figures <laughs> suggest, Glenn. Anyway, uh, please come over. We'd love to see you. Um, but getting back on track now, Glenn, what about the other side, Glenn? What did the show look like? to you as a greenkeeper or course manager? Well, I think I always assumed that lots of people were doing some kind of ordering or serious business discussions. So I was always, I was always a little standoffish as I didn't want to interrupt all those Alan Sugar-type negotiations that were going on. Yeah, it's not like that really anymore. Uh, there was more of that in uh, certainly in the old days, you know, before the internet and email and mobile phones, you know, all the newfangled stuff. But now we're all so, so connected all the time that that element of the show has or does seem to have largely disappeared. Do you think that kind of early ordering or anything like that at BTME will ever return, Henry? Well, actually, yeah, there might be an element of it this year, Glenn, uh, with those material and transport costs rising. I think we might see more of a shift towards early ordering and and sort of bulk ordering this year in order to sort of contain those costs and ensure that people get what they need rather than what's left. It was also a great time to meet up though, Henry. Old friends, new introductions. I learned an awful lot talking to other course managers on the show floor and over a beer. Um, Occasionally, I'd do a bit of interviewing for candidates up there. I would definitely always have my eyes open for super keen greenkeepers who I could try and encourage to come and work for my team. It was really good for that, actually. It was quite unique because you could see them both on their best behaviour in the show and then you could see what they were like in the evening when they were a little off guard and less professional. Yeah, we've all been caught off guard at Harrogate at some point or another. Indeed. When else do you get an opportunity to see potential candidates like that, eh? 
Um, it also fell at a really nice time of the year agronomically, Henry, when I could leave the course and relax a little, knowing there wasn't much disease pressure about. We were discussing that off air, weren't we, last month? Yeah, we talked about that last month and how difficult the Christmas period can be for golf courses agronomically. And off air, we were discussing when Christmas actually should be so we could all relax. Yeah, and we both agreed that the last week of January would be the perfect time for a Christmas break. Indeed. How's your dad getting on with that proposal, Henry? Yeah, I did actually tell him that I mentioned his snow at Christmas fact, and he was genuinely touched when I told him that you agreed with him. He says, hi, Glenn. And yes, the letter lobbying to move Christmas uh, to later on in January is in draft format as we speak. And on the agenda, I would think, to be discussed over Christmas. Um, Thanks for that, Glenn. Whoever decided, though, that the sort of the end of January would be a good time for the show, you know, all that way back when it started, should really be congratulated. It's absolutely perfect, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really good. I've only got one concern about it, Henry, as I always used to get a little frustrated when I was an assistant greenkeeper, when I funded it myself, as it was always a five-week month due to that early Christmas paycheck. And by the end of January, the bank balance was fully utilising the overdraft. So it was always tough to budget for, but as a golf course manager and on balance, it is definitely the best time. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, although it is a good time agronomically, there's no two ways about that, Glenn. It's not necessarily a quiet time, though, is it? No, it's not. There's still lots of projects going on, lots of frost management to be handled, lots of decisions to be made. So you can maybe relax about disease and keeping on top of growth, but lots of other plates spinning at the same time in these days, Henry. Okay, so any tips for getting the best out of the show, Glenn? Well, the most successful ones I had was when I brought my team along and I gave them all something to do and insisted that afterwards that they fed that back to the team. All right, so so what do you mean by that? So, for example, I'd ask one of them to come back for some suggestions on improving our nozzle technology, what the options were, why they were good or bad. I'd ask another one to come back with a complete list of fungicides available to us in the market at the moment. I'd ask one of them to to come up with the neatest or smartest way of directing golf traffic around. And then on our return, I'd ask them all to present their findings to the team. I didn't always do this, but the years that I did it really focused that team on achieving something. Well, there you go. Lots to learn and at an agronomically safe time. But not necessarily a quiet time. No, far from quiet, but a good chance to learn. Some great development opportunities for your team. A t- Certainly a chance to think about the season ahead and discuss any sort of early ordering, maybe, um, to safeguard budgets. I mean, what's not to like? Oh, and don't forget to come and see us and join the On The Horizon Secret Listeners Club. Yes, remember, show us your badge and say loudly, listener approaching On The Horizon. Right, I'll go and get four branded gifts made up, Henry. Excellent. So that's it for January. Lots of risks, lots of challenges. Work hard to keep those greens clean before Christmas and um, don't let those members get on your case too much. Make sure you protect that golf course. We're really looking forward to seeing you at Harrogate this year. 
come and say hello, but let me be the first to wish you all a happy new year. Well said, Glenn. <laughs>